It is not common and not usual for people to have courage like that, to step into a situation where it could mean the end of their lives. But speaking truth to power and standing up and having courage is necessary sometimes. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. A number of years ago, the poet and civil rights activist Maya Angelou was interviewed by the Harvard Business Review. And one of the questions they asked as part of this interview was about Angelou's mother. They asked her what important lessons had she learned from her mother. And this is what Maya Angelou said in response. She said, I would say she encouraged me to develop courage. And she taught me by being courageous herself. And after years of leaving her and, I think, becoming courageous, I realized that one is not born with courage. One develops it. And you develop it by doing small, courageous things in the same way that one wouldn't set out to pick up a 100-pound bag of rice. If that was one's aim, the person would be advised to pick up a five-pound bag and then a 10-pound and a 20-pound and so on and so forth until one builds up enough muscle to actually pick up 100 pounds. And that is really the same way with courage. You develop courage by doing courageous things, small things, but things that cost you some sort of exertion, mental and, I suppose, spiritual exertion. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking about what Angelou said. And I thought courage is kind of a funny thing, you know? It doesn't really come naturally. It's something, like she said, that you have got to work on. <laughs> so I went and I looked up courage in the dictionary, and here's what it says. This is how the dictionary defines courage. It is the quality of mind or spirit that enables a person to face difficulty, danger, pain, without fear or with bravery. That's courage. It's difficult, it's unnatural, it's challenging. It's not something we are born with. You know, in the recent months and years, I think we have watched. We have watched specifically here in the United States, in our country, as more and more people have stood up and spoken out and been courageous. In fact, we can see movements that have grown and have moved because of the courage of one or two that has become contagious and they have grown into the courage of many. As we sit here and watch that, you can see that thread of courage weave its way through a movement and through a people as they stand and as they speak and as they say something that might not come so naturally. And for some of us here, that might be a way that we express our own courage. We speak up, we stand, we speak truth to power. 
But for others, perhaps courage manifests itself in a slightly different way, in a way that is less public. Maybe for you, it's not that. Maybe for you, it's at home. Maybe you have a member of your family, a parent, a child, brother, sister, cousin, somebody who is making life a little difficult, right? And so what do you have to do? You have a couple options, I suppose. You can just sit there and take it, and that may be what you have been doing for weeks, months, years, or a whole life. But sometimes, somehow, at some point, maybe you will grow the courage to speak up, to stand up. Or maybe it's different for you. Maybe it's something at work. You work in a place you enjoy, and your boss is generally good, and you like your coworkers, but you begin to notice over the course of time as it goes by that as you take a little bit of a closer look at what's going on, there are certain things that just don't quite match up. And as you do a little bit of digging, a little bit of finding, you realize that somebody on the team might be doing something a little bit unethical. And so now that you've found out, what does that mean for you? Will you sit there? Will you watch it happen? Or will you stand up? Will you have some courage? It doesn't come naturally. It's unusual. It doesn't feel quite right. But you know, we are not the only ones who have ever struggled with fear and with bringing the courage up. In fact, today we are continuing, we are finishing, I believe, a series that Philip just talked about, about young people like you and like me walking away from church. And I think that's a reality for many. And it's a reality for many probably for good reason, if I'm being honest. And don't get me wrong, I love my church. I've spent my entire life in it. But as I look at many peers of mine, many friends, even family members, and I see people stand up and walk away, I say, well, I understand. And I get it. But tonight, perhaps, maybe we can look at this from a little bit of a different angle. It's easy to stand up and to walk away. But when we think of having courage, perhaps it will be one or two or maybe even many times where somebody in this room or some people in this room stand up and say something. But like I said, we are not the only ones that have ever dealt with this issue. We're going to turn to a text in the Bible, a text we find in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel. And we're going to find somebody in here who has struggled with this exact same issue, with standing up and having courage. So like I said, we're going to read out of 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to begin right at verse 1. So here's what the text says. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now I want us to imagine for a moment that we had the opportunity to talk to Nathan before this moment in time. So if you'll humor me for a minute, imagine we are sitting there with Nathan in his bedroom. And as we think about that, you can imagine him waking up in a cold sweat. He sits up in bed with a start and he looks at you and he looks at me and he's like, man, that, my friends, was a bad, bad dream. But if we were to continue to kind of probe and ask, he would probably sit there and say, man, the more I think about that, the less and less it feels like a dream. Well, we might say, what happened? Why are you sitting up with cold sweats in the middle of the night? And he might say, well, it wasn't just a dream. I think I have received a message from the Lord. Did you hear what happened? Well, Nathan, no. What happened? Well, he says, it's a rough story. But I'll tell you, a little while back, King David was out on the palace roofs in his palace, and he was walking around looking out at the city beneath him. And as he was doing so, he looked down and he saw something he liked, I suppose. He saw a woman, a woman by the name of Bathsheba, and she was out on her roof and she was bathing. And David made a bad decision. Well, what did he do? Well, you see, here's what he did. It was not good. He sent his palace guards out to find Bathsheba. And when they found her, he said, bring her back to the palace. So that's what they did. And what was she going to do? He's the king. What can you do? He's got all the power in this situation. And he brought her back and he brought her into his bedroom. And, you know, they did what people do in bedrooms. And lo and behold, she wound up pregnant. Oh, Nathan, that is not good. You think so, says Nathan? Well, if you think that's bad, it only gets worse from there. Because you see, Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah the Hittite is a man in David's most elite fighting force out fighting war for David right now. Man, we say, that's tough. So what did David do? 
Well, says Nathan, here's what he did. He went and he sent word out to his general, to Joab. And he said, send Uriah back to me, bring him back to Jerusalem. And so that's what happened. He went back to Jerusalem. And David, in an effort to cover up what he had done, he got Uriah really drunk and sent him home in the hopes that he would sleep with his wife. But Uriah is a good man and he wouldn't do it. And David tried again, he wouldn't do it. And David realized that no effort of his was going to be able to cover up what he had done in that moment. Man, that's bad, Nathan. That's really bad. So then what happens? What happens when Uriah finds out? Well, says Nathan, (laughs) again, it gets even worse if you can imagine that. So David had to send Uriah back to the battlefield to fight. And so here's what he did. He drafted a command. And then when he'd finished drafting it, he sealed it up and gave it to Uriah and said, give it to General Joab when you get back. So that's what Uriah did. He took the command. He went back. He gave it to Joab. Joab opened it and, of course, read it. And it said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to put Uriah out there where the fighting is the thickest up by the walls and then pull everybody back except for him and they will kill him. And so that's what Joab did. And that's what happened to Uriah. Nathan, that's a rough story. That is, that's not good. It seems like he continues and continues and continues to try to cover things up. But here's one thing we might say to Nathan. This is what we don't understand. What do you have to do with this? Well, says Nathan, (laughs) here's where I come in. You see, in this dream, nightmare, vision scenario, God has told me that I am the one that has to go tell David that he has sinned. I'm the one that has to call him to task, to speak truth to power, to say something to a king and to a system that could very easily get me killed. Oh, Nathan, you don't, you don't think he'll kill you, do you? I mean, you're a prophet. You're a prophet of God's. Look at what he just did to Uriah, Nathan might say. He killed him. What makes you think he won't kill me? Kings around here have absolute power. There is nothing I can do if David decrees something. And if he decrees that I am dead, believe me, I am dead. In fact, you remember back when Saul was king? Yeah, yeah, you know, I I suppose we remember back when Saul was king. Well, this should serve as an illustration of the lengths kings will go to to get what they want. Back when he was king, there, uh, David, of course, was on the run for a long time. And this one time, David ran to Nob. He ran away, and he ran to a place where uh, Ahimelech was living there in Nob. But there was this guy, this guy named Doeg the Edomite, and Doeg saw where David ran away to. So what did he do? Well, he went to Saul, and he told him where David had run to. And Saul was very unhappy. He even had Ahimelech brought before him and asked, why do you and David conspire together to bring me down? Ahimelech said, of course, that he hadn't done that because he hadn't. And he thought David was Saul's man. And so he was just helping him out for that reason. 
Well, Saul didn't believe Ahimelech. He got super angry, and he ordered all of his guards to kill God's priests there in Nob. But you know what? They wouldn't do it. They were scared of Saul, but they were even more scared of the Lord. But that didn't stop Saul. So he said, okay, Doeg, you go kill them all. And so that's what he did. He killed everyone in that town, even down to the animals. And Ahimelech himself only barely managed to escape with his life. So believe me, says Nathan, the crown has power. If David wants me dead after I try to call him to task, that's what will happen. I will die. Well, what are you going to do then, Nathan? Well, as Nathan kind of leans back into the pillow, he looks at you and me, and you know what he says? He says, well, I suppose there's not much I can do except what God told me to do. I mean, that's what prophets do, isn't it? We follow the word of the Lord, we speak the truth, and when he says, go here, we go there. So what are you going to say to him, Nathan? How are you going to break the news? Are you going to kind of try to soften the blow a little bit, pull your punches? You know, that's the hard part, Nathan says. I tried bargaining with God. I said, God, can I say something a little less confrontational? But God would have none of it. He wants me to go in there, stand in front of David, tell this parable about this rich guy, this poor guy, these sheep and this lamb and a traveler. And then when I'm done, it will serve as a very, very clear analogy for what David has done. And then when he asks, I am supposed to stand there and say, you, David, you are the man. Ooh, well... Good luck, we say to Nathan. It is not common and not usual for people to have courage like that, to step into a situation where it could mean the end of their lives. But speaking truth to power and standing up and having courage is necessary sometimes. It reminds me of a story. In 1933, well-known German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was away from Germany. This was before World War II had started, but many believed that war was becoming more and more inevitable at this point. They could begin slowly but surely to see Adolf Hitler for who he really was, and they knew war was on the horizon. So in that year of 1933, Swiss theologian Karl Barth and contemporary of Bonhoeffer's wrote his discouraged colleague. And he, uh, Bart and Bonhoeffer, both disgusted with the German Christian response to Hitler. Um, and for that reason, Bonhoeffer had fled Germany. He was upset at his own people for the way they had responded to Hitler in such a lukewarm way. And so this is what Karl Barth wrote to Bonhoeffer. What is all of this about going away? in the quietness of pastoral work, in a moment where you are wanted in Germany. You, who know as well as I do that the opposition in Berlin and the opposition of the church in Germany as a whole stands inwardly on such weak feet. Why aren't you always there where so much could depend on there being a couple of game people on the watch at every occasion, great or small, and trying to save what there is to be saved? I think that I can see from your letter that you, like all of us, yes, all of us, 
are suffering under the quite common difficulty of taking certain steps in this present chaos. But should it not dawn on you that there is no reason for withdrawing from this chaos, that we are rather required in and with our uncertainty, even if we should stumble or go wrong 10 times or 100 times, to do our bit? One simply cannot become weary now. Still less can one go to England. What in all the world would you want to do there? You must now leave go of all these intellectual flourishes and special considerations, however interesting they may be, and think of only one thing, that you are a German and the house of your church is on fire, that you know enough to be able to help and that you must return to your post by the next ship. Perhaps in response to the things Bart had said to him, Bonhoeffer would ultimately say, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Bonhoeffer would ultimately return to Germany. He would even be involved on an assassination attempt on Hitler. And he became well known for his vocal opposition to the Nazi regime and to Hitler's treatment of the Jews. In 1943, he was arrested and imprisoned. Bonhoeffer spoke truth to power. And on April 9, 1945, at the age of 39, he would pay for it with his life. He would be hung at the Flossendorf concentration camp only two weeks before the United States Army liberated the camp where he was held. There are moments in all of our lives where the Lord calls us to take a stand and say, you are the man. You are the one who God is calling to task. So today, as we sit here, and as we think about the courageousness of others in great and in grand moments, here's where I would encourage you perhaps to take a small stand. This is a wonderful church, and I love it very deeply and very dearly. I am a lifelong member and have no intention of going anywhere. But despite the fact that I love this church, I also recognize that it has its shortcomings. It is, after all, run by human beings like you and me. And there are places, perhaps, where God has called me and has called you and you and you and you to take a stand and say, you are the man that God is calling to task. You are the one who has gone wrong here. So as we go from this place this evening, I would encourage you, and wherever you are in your life, take a stand and be courageous. And for some of us, that might look like, as Maya Angelou says, a 100-pound bag of rice to pick up. But for others, it will start much smaller for most of us, I would say it will start much smaller with a five-pound bag, and then a 10-pound bag, and a 20-pound bag, and so on and so forth, until we've exercised that courageous muscle enough to be able to pick up those heaviest bags 
and stand in a place, perhaps even of great fear, and say, you are the man. Lord, we come this evening a people before you. We ask for your blessing and for your grace, and tonight especially for your courage. There are many places in life for each and every one of us where it might be time to take a stand. So we ask that you be on that journey with us and walk every step of the way from beginning to end. Bless us, Lord, and give us courage. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.